Now, if you have your Bibles, will you turn to 1 John chapter 4? That's the epistle of John, the first epistle, 1 John chapter 4. If you're not sure where that is, it's toward the end of the Bible. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, and the book of Revelation. So, uh, 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to begin to read verse 7 through verse 14. I've entitled this section, God Sent His Son. God Sent His Son. So, verse 7, 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, uh, sorry, in this is love not that we have loved God but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And we'll stop right there and may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Now let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we come into your holy presence this morning to hear your word, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would take the things of God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and reveal them to us afresh. Lay upon us, Father, our responsibilities in the light of what you have done for us. That we might truly recognize that we have been born of God, that we know God. We thank you for this text before us. Help us to understand it, but help us to live it, we pray. And thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit and thank you for your son. We pray that you would receive all the glory and all the praise. For we ask all of these things in the name of your beloved Son, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Every time you read uh, the works or the letters of the Apostle John, you have to come away from it staggered by the immensity of what he reveals concerning God and concerning Jesus. It doesn't matter if you take the Gospel of John and then you turn to the Epistles of John or the Book of Revelation. What John writes is impressive, isn't it? He opens for us a deeper way, a deeper understanding of the theological implications of, of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Book of Revelation is simply a declaration, a revelation of Christ. And every time John writes, whether it's in his Gospel or in his epistles. He is unfolding for us something more, something deeper concerning Jesus. We've, dis we've, we've been trying this month of December to unfold for ourselves, to, to unpack what John has said in his gospel about the eternal word, the Logos, who was with God and was God who became flesh. We're trying to understand the mystery of the Incarnation. We're trying to get a grip on, a grasp on what the incarnation really is all about. And I think here in 1 John chapter 4, we have an unfolding of the purpose that God had in sending Jesus. I've entitled this, God sent His Son for particular reasons, as we'll notice in the text. The reasons for the incarnation or the fruit, the results of the incarnation are found here in the text. When I say reasons, I'm really asking the question or wanting the answer to the question, why? Why? Why did God send His Son? 
And not only that, but if I talk about the results, then the question really is what? What is the result of why God sent His Son? What do I derive from it? What do I gather from it? What do I learn from this passage? Any results that you might come to in your mind or in your heart from the Word of God right here in this passage would be derived and should only be derived from the reasons. So here you have the reasons and then the results from the reasons. And that's how we must think when we come to God's Word. The reasons or purpose that we have here are really in three statements. I want you to notice them. The first statement is verse 9. So look with me at verse 9. God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. That's the first statement. You see it? Verse 9. God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. What a profound statement that is. Second statement, verse 10. God sent His Son to be the propitiation, the atonement the sacrifice for our sins. Verse 10. God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Third statement, verse 14. You go down to verse 14. The Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Now if you put those three together, the dominant statement, right, must surely be God sent His Son. In all three verses, God sent His Son And these statements are made, but it's not just left for us as if those statements are are out there, God sent His Son, now what, so what? No, God sent His Son with results. Results. Results for us. Benefits for us. So notice notice again, for instance, verse 9, the first result that we might live through Him. That's the first result of the fact that God sent His only Son into the world. That we might live through Him. So, reason, God sent His Son into the world. Result, that we might live through Him. Second statement, of course, in verse 10, with the result, to be the propitiation for our sins. Why did God send His Son? To be the propitiation for our sins. Third statement, why did God send His Son? To be the Savior of the world. Three statements. Three implications. Three results. God just didn't send His Son and nothing happened. God sent His Son with purpose. God sent His Son to accomplish something. Those accomplishments are that we might have life in and through Him, that He might be the propitiation, the sacrifice for our sins, and that He would be the Savior of the world. Each of those results, right? Live through Him, be the propitiation for our sins, be the Savior of the world. Each of those requires one simple thing, that God send His Son. In order to live in Christ or through Christ, in order for Christ to be the propitiation for our sins, in order to be the Savior of the world, as John puts it here, God must send His Son. It's the only way that it is accomplished, these results. They require God to send His Son. Bethlehem is much more than a manger scene. Bethlehem is much more than a baby in a manger. At the end of my street where I live, uh, one of our neighbors has put up this big manger scene. And when it gets dark, the lights come on, and there's this big, huge manger scene. Now, I I know for a fact they're not believers at all. But there they got this manger scene. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, that's... That's the level of the world in their understanding of the Incarnation. That's what the world gets out of the Incarnation. It gets celebration. It gets fluff. Right? Shallow stuff. Decorations in your garden. Don't get me wrong, I'm not opposed to decorations as long as they're good. Okay? Any statues or stuff like that's got to go. But anything that's... You know, and I think people are wanting a little bit of life, a little bit of light, a little bit of cheer, a little bit of hope in this dark world, right? That's why they do these things. But isn't the darkness of our world 
dealt with by God in sending His Son who is the light of the world. So light has come. In fact, that, that's what we saw, for example, in John's Gospel, the first chapter, that John the Baptist came to bear witness about the light, and the light has now come into the world which overcomes us. The true light was sent by God. So God has, has, has reasons or results that flow from just the simple determination that He would send His Son into the world so that you and I might have life, that Jesus might be the sacrifice for our sins, that He would be the Savior. That's the incarnation. That's what Christmas is all about. God sending His Son to accomplish those three things. Life in Christ, salvation through His sacrifice in Christ. God did not send forth a baby. No, He sent forth His Son. The big difference. He did not send forth a baby like any other baby, but He sent forth His Son. This is why Paul, when he writes to the Galatians, puts it as he does in chapter 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth Son. Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us, to save us, to deliver us. Why did God send His Son when the right time had come, when the fullness of time had come? To redeem us, to save us. That's the purpose of the incarnation. That's the result of why Jesus came, to bring salvation to us. Not to give us a little cheer on December 25, all the weeks surrounding it. But to give us real, spiritual, soul-satisfying joy. That's why Jesus came. That's why God sent forth His Son into the world. Now, if you, 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 for those of you who were with us on John, uh, the first Advent Sunday, John 1, 1, in the beginning God sent forth, I mean, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When we looked at that, that verse implies that when the beginning was, whenever that beginning was, the Son already existed. And we derived from that statement that not only was the Son a separate, distinct person from the Father, because He was with God, but then the statement was that He was God, we derived from that the pre-existence of God the Son. And the shocking thing about the, that is that that pre-existent Son in John's Gospel, you remember from chapter 1 verse 14, that the Word who was with God and was God, He became flesh. And He lived among us. He dwelt among us. And John says, we have beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus reveal Himself? Because He came to bring truth and He came to bring grace. His kindness toward us. His, his mercy, His favor, His grace. God's grace to us in the gift of His Son. God sent His Son. God sent His Son. Both persons, Father and Son, as we have seen, are God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. We confess a Trinitarian God. Three persons, one God. To be clear. Not three gods, but one God. Three persons. But when you consider the Son, the Son is a little different, isn't it? Because He became flesh. Never gave up His deity. In fact, what that means is that He added humanity to His deity, to, who, to whom He was. And yet those two natures of deity and humanity never conflict with each other, never are confused with one another, never blend together. But Jesus lives His life as one person with those two natures uh, within Him. It's miraculous. Which is exactly what the incarnation is, right? It's beyond us. What we must do when we deal with the incarnation is to fall down and worship God, that God designed this. And God has accomplished His redemption, His purpose for us. Now these three statements you notice here, right? Verse 9, verse 10, verse 14. And their results that are in the verses, they don't just happen. Right? They happen because of something. 
There's a reason why God sent forth His Son and accomplished those three results. There's something that lies behind this. So look at verse 9. I mean, how does verse 9 begin? In this, the love of God was manifest among us that God sent His Son. You see? In this, the love of God was revealed. In this, the love of God was shown, was made manifest among us. In what way? God sent His Son. So, God sending His Son is a revelation, is a manifestation of the love of God. Now look at verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So twice now, in verse 9 and in verse 10, we are told that the motivation, the motivating driving factor... Behind why God sent His Son was the love of God. The love of God. In fact, John in his epistle is loaded with love, isn't it? In fact, 1 John is all about love. Love God, love your neighbor, or love your brother and sister in particular. You cannot say that you love God if you don't love your brother and sister. And if you don't love your brother and sister, then surely you don't love God. I mean, these are the implications of 1 John. Very profound. Very hard sometimes to read and sometimes to hear that you don't supposed to go on sinning because you love God and you've been born of God. And yet we all struggle with sin, don't we? It's the great war, the great battle that each one of us experiences. So when you read this very beautiful first epistle of John, the theology within John seems, in my opinion, to go one step further than the theology of John's gospel. Because what John derives in 1 John is practice. I want to see the proof, he says. I want to see the evidence of what you say you believe. John's gospel, for example. I want to see that now in your life. I want to see the evidence. That's why he says in verse 9 and 10, if you want to understand why God sent forth His Son to be whatever it is, propitiation for our sins, to give us life in Christ, to Jesus to be the Savior of the world. If you want to understand that, you need to understand the love of God. That's what motivated the Father to send the Son. This love of God. So the reason why Jesus came into the world was because of love. Love. Look at verse 8, for example. It says at the end of verse 8 that God is love. If you go down to uh, verse 16, God is love right there in the middle of the verse. So now twice, in verse 18 and verse 16, we are told God is love. We derive from that that a primary attribute of God is love. Right? God is love. I love how Mr. Spurgeon thinks about this because he says... Can any of us imagine the eternal Father and eternal Son in this perfect, loving, harmonious, infinite, immutable, unchangeable relationship that is just love? You can't comprehend that. For eternity, they existed perfectly, without disagreement, without lack of harmony, without lack of harmony, just perfection in love among themselves and then God determined to translate that love into time by sending his son so that those who enter and are in relationship to his son experience the same love that exists between father and son mind-blowing right That we are the recipients of this loving relationship between the Father and the Son that is now translated into time for the believer, brothers and sisters, to love on the same level that the Father loved the Son. And what we like to do is, His love, the love of the Father and the Son, bring it down to our level. But that's not what John does. John takes this here, us here, and he brings us up To this level, the highest perfect level, the level of God's love for his son and God's son's love for his father. And he says we live in that. 
Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. What do you mean, John? John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1. What do you mean by that? Our fellowship is with Father and Son. A loving relationship between Father and Son that we now have entered into and rejoice in. So, it's big, right? God is love. He's huge. In this, the love of God was manifested. From who God is. God is love. From that character, that attribute of God, flows all the determination, all the decrees, all the plans, all the purposes of God for His Son, for God's glory, and for your incorporation into the family of God. So love is not the only reason. It's the main reason. It's true. But there are other reasons. Because, for example, we must love God. If God loved us, we must love God. We must love God for what He did. What did He do? We must love Him for that. We must love God because of who He is. Who is God? God is love. We must love God because of who God is. But not only that, but John. He says we must love one another. We must love one another. Now, you know, Christmas celebrations in the world are couched in the language, I suppose, well, we should all get along and love one another. But that's not what John's talking about, that kind of love. He's not talking about a world's love. No, he's talking about the love that exists between father and son displayed for you and me to enter into and to show and demonstrate to one another to love each other. So my response, your response to the love of God or to the fact that God is love is you must love one another and you must love one another this way. You can't do it any other way. No, you must love as God loved. Now you know the Apostle John, he's known, isn't he, as the Apostle of love. In fact, he describes himself in his own gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. There was an affection between Jesus and the Apostle John. There was this delight. There was, this, there was something about that so much so that John could describe himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Of course, Jesus loved Simon Peter and Matthew and the others. But John describes himself as the one who, who felt this, this, this love. He was the recipient of the love of Christ. You see, when you become a Christian you enter into this love that God has for you. But not just enter into the love God has for you, but you are expected to demonstrate the love that God has for you to each other, to your brothers and to your sisters. So this level of loving is predicated and based upon the foundation that God actually is love and God loved us so much so that He sent His Son for us. Now, you know what's remarkable about verses 7 through 14? Eight verses. John uses the noun form, the verbal form of love, agape, some 15 times. That's like once every verse, or twice every verse, I should say. 15 times in eight verses, he just crams this word, love, which is an action, right? We are to love. Love must come from this doesn't matter if he uses it as a noun or if he uses it verbally. Love is what he's thinking about. You remember the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13? He gave us that great detailed exposition of what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. And so on. Right? You remember that? He gave us that great eloquent description and exposition of what love is. But John is a little different because John is not telling us what love is per se. What he is doing is urging us, directing us to love ourselves or to love others. We must love others. Now, you know, John uses love a lot, 15 times, right? In eight verses here, as well as the rest of the epistle. He uses the word love not because it's just the right thing to do. Now, there are many right things to do, and we ought to do them. That's not why John uses the word love in this passage, but he wants to use it as a means of identification. That those who love, 
They are a particular people. They are God's children. Not God's children because God is the creator of all, like some people think, you know, well, we're all God's children because God created us. No, it's not what the Bible says. No, the children of God are those who have come to God in repentance and faith and have derived and received this great tender love of Christ revealed at the cross and have believed and have turned from their sins and have repented and now have found within them the ability to love one another as Christ loved us. John says that's the proof. That's the evidence that you really did believe the gospel. That you really were saved. That you really were born again. That you really were converted. The proof is that you love. That's the fruit out of this great change that salvation has brought. That's what John is telling us. A means of identification. Which becomes even more closer to the bone. Because that means that love is the evidence of whether you are a Christian or not. That's it. Love is the defining thing. Don't, isn't there that song, they shall know we are Christians by our love. Right? That's right. The disciples are known for their love. Love of God, love of Christ, but love of each other, right? So love becomes the evidence, the standard, by which a person is defined as whether they are a Christian or not a Christian. Not just because you say you love, but because you show the love of God, the love of Christ. It's easy to say, oh, I love you. Oh, I love my brother. I love my sister. Easy to say that, but do we show? That's the proof. In this is the love of God shown, manifested, revealed that God sent His Son. God showed His love. He sent Christ for us. When we talk about this love, you know, it really is, first of all, a particular kind of love, a particular love, a unique love. John doesn't mean that if you heard somebody say, I love my child, that that therefore means that person is a Christian. It's not what John means. I, I dare say the vast majority of humanity would say, I love my children. That doesn't make them a Christian. That's not what John means when you say, I love my child, or I love my cousin, or I love my husband or my wife. That's not what John means when he talks about this love here. No, he means, when he talks about this love, to love as God loved us. That's what he means. To love each other as God loved you, and me in particular. You can only do that, by the way, if number one, you know God, and number two, if you have been born of God. You say, well, how do you know that, Russ? Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. Beloved, here's the statement. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. There it is, right? Right there in the text. How can I love as God loves? Well, I must love. Let us love one another. Why? Because love is from God. But the one who loves with this love from God has been born of God and knows God. Wow. Well, that eliminates the vast majority of people who might say, I love my child. Verse 7 says, whoever loves. What does he mean by that? He, he means, of course, referring back to the opening line of verse 7, let us love one another. Whoever loves, he says. The whoever loving is because it's under that direction, that, that directive of let us love one another. And this love, right, comes from God. Look at the text. For love is from God. So, my love is from God, love is from God, but the whoever, John doesn't mean anybody. No, he specifies who the whoever is. Who are the whoever's, right? Look at verse 7. Whoever loves, number one, has been born of God, and number two, knows God. Now, what does that mean? That means that you possess life from God, and you possess the knowledge of God. Now, you know, I, I come across people that tell me that I love God. 
but they're having the foggiest notion of what it means to be born of God. Well, how can you know God then? You've got some idea of God, but your idea of God, the God of the Bible, is not the God of the Bible. It's not Jesus Christ, according to the Bible. Because you see, these two things go together in verse 7. To love as God loved, I must have, number one, life from God, and number two, I must know God. I must have life, and I must have the knowledge of God. Now, you cannot know God without life from God. I don't mean physical life. I mean spiritual life, new birth, right? Notice what the text says. Whoever loves has been born of God. He means the new birth. He means saving faith. He means salvation. He means you've been redeemed. You've been saved. You've been born of God. It's a spiritual thing. Though only the person who has life from God, has been born from God, can love. As God loved. Love others. So... To know God is the result or the fruit of the new birth. I must be a Christian in order to say, at least, that I know God. If I'm not a Christian, how can I ever begin to say I know God? Can't do it. No, to know God is the result of this new birth, of being born of God. Now, what does that mean, right? We like to use terms like uh, justification, sanctification. Adoption. These are all words that theologically describe the process, the work of God in saving us. They, they convey the idea of salvation, God's salvation, as we find it expressed in the word. But when we talk about, for instance, let's say justification or saving faith, we mean that that is the ground and that is the foundation from which my knowledge of God springs forth. If I'm not justified, if I don't have saving faith, no knowledge of God. Utterly impossible. Cannot be known. Because I can only know God if I have been born of God. And so those two go together. And notice that these theological truths, right, about being born of God and knowing God, possessing life from God and having the knowledge of God, they are, they are the... the the, ba- the, the basic framework from which you can love one, someone else. If you're not born of God, and if you don't know God, you can never love one another, as John says. Because you have to be a Christian. You have to be born of God. And you have to know God. And so, we must be very particular and careful here not to separate these kinds of things. For instance, Calvin reminds us that if anyone separates faith from love, it is as if he were trying to take away the heat from the sun. They go together. The heat and the sun. can't divide them and separate them. Neither can you separate faith and love. In fact, our loving one another is dependent upon our being born again, born of God and knowing God himself. So to love someone else is not just an airy feeling. It's not just an emotion. It's not just some psychological thing that zaps your brain every once in a while when you see a particular person. It's not that at all, right? No. Love, as John urges us, depends upon new life from God and depends on the knowledge of God. And without those two things, love is foreign to us. No, you know, when I read John like that, it's like, this is heavy stuff, right? This is heavy stuff because what John is doing is grounding the practice of loving and living that kind of life in deep biblical truth, born of God and the knowledge of God. Now, if you don't love in this way, notice what John says in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Anyone who does not love, You can only love if you're born of God and if you know God. If anyone does not love, does not know God because God is love. Now go down to verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, hates his brother, he's a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Verse 21. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You see how practical John is, right? You can't claim some deep theological, biblical relationship with God if you don't love brother or sister. It's impossible, he says. In fact, if you say you love God but actually hate brother, sister, he says, sorry, you're missing the point. You don't get it. You don't love God. It's very practical, John. So what I love about John's Gospel or John's Epistles, right? Or, or even the book of Revelation. Deep, powerful, rich theology, but yet designed, written by, under the inspiration of God to be very practical. To be lived out. To be, to be demonstrated, to be shown, to be manifested, to be seen. So, John is saying this, if you know the Lord, then you know the love of God, and as a result you are enabled to love others. If you know the Lord, then you know the love of God for you, and that enables you to love others. So you discover that regeneration, this doctrine of you must be born again, right, which Jesus said to Nicodemus, that unless you are born again, you cannot enter, cannot see the kingdom of God. Regeneration then is essential to being able to love as God loved. Now you have to ask yourself the question, am I regenerate? Am I born again? Am I born of God? Like verse 7 says. Do I really know God? Does my knowledge of God spring from this new birth? This new relationship? New identity? This is who I am because of what Christ has done for me. And this is the fruit. I love my brothers and my sisters. Before there can be any expression of divine love by us, to our brothers and sisters, there has to be the reception of divine love by us. We must be born of God to be like God, as God loves. Now I say, having said all that, that's why God sent His Son. So that we can be loved. That this can be our life. You notice at the end of verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. What does He mean? Have life. Have life from Him. Have life in Him and live it out. Just go back to chapter 3 and look at verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Wow. Wow. Now, you might say, well, we love, I love, because I believed. Or, I love, uh, and we love, because that's what we should do. That's not what John says. John says in chapter 3, verse 14, that we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whew. How do you pass... Out of death, spiritual death, into spiritual life, what's the fruit of it? What's the evidence? What's the proof? You love the brothers and sisters. This idea that you can have church by yourself somewhere else, at home, or through a live stream, and I've, I've entered into the church experience, what rubbish, right? What rubbish, what nonsense. That's not, that's not the, the gathering of God's people where we express our affection. And our love for each other, which flows out of here on the Lord's Day into the week. This is not some shallow, motivational, psychological, emotional diatribe that I'm giving you here. This is a biblical, theological exposition of what God is saying in His Word. We know, I have the knowledge that I have passed out of spiritual death into spiritual life. My life has done a 180 turn. I'm completely changed. I'm different. I once was like that, but no longer I'm like this. What does this look like? I love God, and I love His people. That's it. That's it. That's how you know you've passed from death, spiritual death, into spiritual love. Do you love the people of God? That's it. That's the test. That's the acid test. 
that we might live. If I don't have life, I don't have love. If I don't have life from God, I cannot love as God loved, right? That means I can't love the Lord and I can't love you if I don't have life, spiritual life. Ah, what a magnificent reason for God to send His Son that I might have life so that I might be able to love my brothers and sisters the way Jesus loved me, loved us. That's why God sent His Son. What a reason that I might have this life from God and as a result, as a fruit, be able to love brothers and sisters. You know, the church of Jesus is not like your local club down the road who play ping pong or pickleball as the craze is today. We're not, like, we're not a club. Okay? No, we're much more than that. We are the blood-bought people of God. He sent His Give us life. Right? And notice, this is a particular love, right? It doesn't originate in me. I mean, I didn't come up with this idea, oh, you know, I love God. I would, I would never say that I love God unless God showed Himself. Revealed Himself. Nobody can say I love God and is complete ignoramus of Scripture. It's not possible. You have to you have to know God. You have to be born of God, right? So this particular love doesn't originate in me and it doesn't originate in you. It comes only from God. I mean, look what verse 10 says. In this is love, not that we love God. There it is. I didn't love God. You didn't love God. But He loved us. Isn't that great? He loved us. What, what's the result of He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins? And that's the big problem we all have, right? Sins. Our sins. So the reason this comes from God, this love comes from God, is because it, this kind of love is because it's a sacrificial love. It's not just a particular love. Because God is love, but it's a sacrificial love. God sent His Son to be the sacrifice for our sins. It's a sacrificing love. We must never just think that Jesus sacrificed Himself. Did not the Father sacrifice what existed between them from all eternity to send His Son into the world? And did not the cross reveal the separation between Father and Son? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because I love your people, Jesus, who are my people. That's why we're separated. To God sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. Now you know the world's standard of love is selfish love. The world's standard of love is self-oriented love, self Centered love, it centers on me. What do I get out of it? This is the great problem in marriages, right? What do I get out of it? That's not the issue. The issue is not what do I get out of it, but what do I put in? Because putting in is the love of Christ. Putting in is the love of God. Not taking out, receiving, but giving. Giving of myself, right? You see, we always place and want to place conditions on love. Which means, if you do that, you place conditions on God. And you must never do that. Because God doesn't place conditions. Look at your condition. You did not love God. You are instead in sins and trespasses. What did God do? Say, mm, no, sorry. You're not good enough. No, God never said that. He said, you're the worst and I love you. Right? You're the worst and I love you. Now verse 11 confirms that God loves us. Look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, you know, I mean, John's just saying what I've been trying to tell you. Right? He just says it in one verse. I'm taking a long time to explain it. But there it is, right? This is God loving us. How does He love us? Verse 10, He sends His Son to die for our sins. That's how He loves us. And Jesus is born... 
Jesus comes into the world, this is the incarnation, to sacrifice His love for us and to satisfy God's holy judgment, holy demands against my sin, which is propitiation. That's what He says. God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to satisfy justice, God's holy justice. See, because I can't satisfy it. My death doesn't even satisfy God's holy justice. In fact, my death is just the entrance into a long, eternal judgment that is never ending and therefore never repaid. That's... Jesus just takes care of that by his death. He takes the judgment. He bears the wrath. He bears my penalty. He takes my punishment. He appeases the wrath of God. He satisfies the justice of God. God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's love. That's what John says. That's the love of God, right? Jesus' death satisfies everything God has against me. Everything. Not one thing left out. Not one sin omitted out of the millions and billions of my life. Not one. Jesus makes atonement for them all. Himself. You have any idea what it means to, for God to be satisfied? To be satisfied? God is not going to turn around and say, hmm, Jesus' work was only part of the issue. He saw, you need to live a life now that's better, and then I'll think about it as to whether I accept you. Think about the satisfaction that Jesus attained. The complete forgiveness of all of our sins. Never to be recounted and recalled if forgiven. Jesus satisfies justice that I should undergo, right? The wrath of God. So this concept of God sending his son, right? I mean, that, it's not like God woke up one day and said, I have a plan. Right? No, God has always had a plan because he's eternal and his plan is everlasting and eternal. So God has a plan which reveals His purpose. What is His purpose? Redemption. Salvation. That's His purpose. That's His plan. Verse 10 says, the propitiation for our sins. John's sins and your sins, my sins. God is motivated by His love for us to send His Son so that our sins will be forgiven. That's Ephesians 1 verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In love. Motivated by love. Election. Predestination. Foreordination. Foreknowledge. All of these glorious truths are wrapped up in love. The love of God. Right? We are children by election. We are children by adoption. That's God's purpose in and through Jesus Christ for his people. But God just doesn't do that without dealing with our sins, which he deals with at the cross in the death of Jesus, who's the propitiation for our sins. And the cross, surely, is the greatest declaration that God loves. That he loves sinners who are bad news. That he really loves them. We are forgiven as a result of the cross, you see. That's why the cross is the central focal point of all of human history. It's the plan of God. It's where God's purposes come to, right? God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ did what? Died for us. God demonstrates his love for us in that while I was still sinful, Jesus died for my sins. Romans 5. Look how John puts it here. Look at chapter 3 verse 1, right? Chapter 3 verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. How did you become a child of God? Jesus died. Jesus died. God demonstrates his love for us. Now, this is what John's saying, right? Okay, so he gives us this, this uh, redemptive theology. 
But he doesn't want to just give it to us and say, look, now look how smart I am and look how smart you are now that you've got your Johannine theology down. No, because Johannine theology is not just theology, it's practice. So, right, you see, since Jesus loved us, look at verse 11, we ought to love one another. If God so loved us, sent his son, Jesus died for us, and because Jesus died, he, must, he loved us. If that's true, verse 11 says, we ought also to love one another. Paul uses the same word in Ephesians 5, right? Verse 28, husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church. That's what he says, right? So you see, both John and both Paul, they recognize a simple, basic obligation to love each other, or your husband, or your wife, or your children. Since God loved us. He loved us, verse 7. He loves us, verse 11. So our sacrificial love, because remember, there's particular love of God, there's the sacrificing love of God, is derived from an obligation. As a consequence, we love because God loved us. Okay, so, I have this particular love, and I have this sacrificial love that's demonstrated for me by God in sending His Son so that I might be the same. Okay? But that's not all there is. I mean, look at verses 12 through 14. If, if it's, not, it's not just particular or sacrificial, but it's revealed. It's revealed love. So notice, just because I cannot see God, verse 12, no one has ever seen God, just because I cannot see God doesn't mean God doesn't exist. Right? No one has ever seen God. But the proof of God's existence, if we love one another, God abides in us, he says, and his love is perfected in us. So, what has God done? He's shown himself. He's revealed himself. God has... As, as, as if it were opened heaven. Here I am. And how do we see him? We see him in Christ. God sent his son. Right? So God has given himself. Now listen. I think you know this. You cannot truly know someone unless they show themselves to you. You cannot really know someone unless they reveal themselves. And demonstrate themselves. I mean, I think this is common knowledge, right? Notice that John says, look at verse 14. We have seen and we testify that the Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. John says, look, I've got proof. I've got evidence. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, that's the proof God abides in us. And that His love is perfected in us. So John says, look, I've got evidence. And my evidence that there is God is that God's love abides in me. That's how he knows God exists. Because he sees it in the love between each other. And not only that, but God abides in us, he says. And his love has been perfected. That word perfection or perfected there is not to be sinlessly perfect. Nor does it mean that God's love needs perfecting. But rather what he means is that his love has been made complete in us. And it's an ongoing process. Now you know love always has implications, right? It's kind of like an if-then, if-then kind of thing. If God did this, then this is the consequence. So notice what you have here. Here you have, and I have, first of all, the presence of God. He says God abides in us, right? Verse 12. If we love one another, here's the proof. That God exists, God abides in you, the presence of God with us. And secondly, when he says, verse 12, and his love is perfected in us, the perfecting or the completion of the love of God has been lived out in our lives. You see it. You can't miss it. So how can I know God's presence and how can I know that I'm in this process of being perfected? Look at verse 13. By this... By those things, he says, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. More proof, right? So my assurance here is the gift of the Holy Spirit, is what he's saying. That God gives the spirit and as a result of the spirit, I can live like this and love. 
This means I live in God and God lives in me. You live in God, God lives in you. How do you know that? Because of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit. You say, well, Eris, this is heavy stuff. It is heavy stuff. I'm having difficulty preaching it. Now, how do you know this, Russ? Well, just reverse yourself. I mean, take, for instance, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He's given us of His Spirit. Well, how do I know? Because, back up verse 12, His love has been perfected in us. Back up verse 11. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Do you love? You see, that's the issue. That's why He says in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. Because that's the proof. Let me give you three things, and I'm done. Three things to think about. Number one, all of this provides confirmation for us. That's what John is doing. He wants to assure us. He wants to help us. He wants us to know these things. He wants us to believe these things. So he provides confirmation. Look at verse 14. And we have seen and testify, he says, that God, or that the Father, has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Of all people. Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, barbarians, Scythians, free, slave, doesn't matter. Confirmation. Notice the words he uses. We have seen and we testify. Now usually if I, see, if, if I have to go to court because I saw a crime... I go to court because I saw the crime, but they want me to really testify that I saw it. What did you see? And then I tell them. They say, thank you very much. I've done two things. I saw it, and I've testified. John says the same thing here. He says, we have seen, and as a result of seeing, and John literally saw Jesus, as a result of my seeing, I testify, he says, that the Father sent His Son to be our Savior. Provides confirmation. But it provides confirmation for what? It provides confirmation that God loves me. And it provides confirmation as a result of that, that I must love my brothers and sisters. That's the first thing. Second is verse 15. It requires confession. Can't keep this to yourself, right? Verse 15 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. He's already talked about abiding in God and God abiding in us. So now here he just adds another level. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So to acknowledge that Jesus is Savior is to say that my Savior is none other than the Son of God. That's what John said. You have to confess that. You say, I believe that. That's true. I believe that. So we have to not only confirm these things, but we confess these things. And thirdly, look at verse 17. It obtains confidence for us. By this is, the lo is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. You see, in the day of judgment, the acid test is practical. Did you love the brothers and sisters? There will be many people who will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these miracles and signs and wonders? And when Jesus boils it all down, he says, it's all about a cup of cold water in my name. Because he might, he's going to say, for sure, in that day, I don't know you. You're a worker of lawlessness. Because you don't love. You talk, but you don't show. You don't love. So to love each other becomes this acid test in the day of judgment. To have confidence on that day, right? That's the issue. To have confidence on that day. I must abide in God and abide in His love. Can I do that? Yes, you know why? Because God sent His Son for me. Because He loved me. 
gave himself for me. My life is 180 degrees. It's different. It's changed. And it's ongoing change. It's been sanctified by the Spirit of God. He's given us his Spirit. Fruit is being developed, right? That's the Christian's life. It must be seen. It must be observed. You shall know them by their theology. No way. You shall know them because they've got a good handle on the Old Testament. No. You shall know them because, well, they seem quite theologically observant and intelligent. No. You shall know them by their fruits. By the evidence. By the proof that they love me. That's what Jesus is saying, right? And I say to you this morning, at this time of year, that's why God sent His Son. That's why God sent His Son, so that I can truly love you and others as God has loved us. Let's pray together. Our Father, pray that you would make this true in each of our lives this morning, that you would open our hearts to the love of God, to the grace of the Lord Jesus, to the work of the Spirit. We thank you that your word has been given so that faith comes by hearing the word. We pray that there might be ears this morning and hearts this morning that believe because you work in them. You are sovereign. You are God. There is none other like you. You are our God. You have loved us so much that you gave your son to die for us. That's why he came. Now we ask as a result that you would continue to change us and confirm us and conform us into the likeness and the image of Jesus. Thank you for his love for us. He died. He laid down his life for us. As a result, Father, help each of us to love one another. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to change the hymn, if I may, Jason. Number 388, 300.